0: I got an exciting phone call last night about nine o'clock from my dentist. His name is Felix. He lives up in um, Visalia. That's right. I drive three hours one way to go to the dentist. And um, he has two daughters. But on Friday night at about one in the morning, he got himself a brand new bouncing baby boy. And um, I send every tape of any message I ever give up to Felix. He's kind of got a neat thing going. He straps his patient down in the chair and then he plays tapes, you know, and he's got a captive audience. And um, having to listen to me puts them in such agony they forget the drill and everything else, you know. So he'll be getting this tape of this message. And I thought it would be fun. He, He has given more to the Masters College than we can ever even begin to estimate. His heart is in this place. And I thought it would be good if we as a student body greeted him. So on three, if you would just simply shout out, hey, Felix, way to go. Could you do that? Is that all right? We'll try to pick this thing up. So ready? One, two, three. Hey, Felix, hey, All right, good. He'll be getting that all the way up in Visalia. Good. Thank you for that. Isn't that fun? Those of you who know me know that I have a passion for keeping up with the um, current events, the headlines. And there isn't a day goes by where I don't scan the newspaper in order to find out what's taking place in our world. Anybody could read the L.A. Times. And anybody could read the Daily News. I like to go to where the real news is reported, the heartbeat behind the headlines, so I brought with me the current issue of the weekly World News. There are stories in here you'll never read in the Daily News. I guarantee that. The big banner headline, you can read it probably from the top row up there baby born with bullet in chest the most incredible proof of reincarnation ever surgeons are stunned as they remove revolutionary war musket ball from infant you won't read that in the LA Times I guarantee I was sitting with Kimmy down here and she didn't believe that story I asked you would they print that if it wasn't true Would they do that? In this same issue, I mean, I hit the banner issue. You don't just buy this anyplace. I had to go to Osco Drugs for this, you know. In this same issue, headline, Supermom has 32 babies in 36 years. And after the last baby was born, she said, quote, This boy is my last one, says pooped parent. You won't read that anywhere, but Here. That didn't ring your bell. Okay, well then we'll move over to this one. How about this one? Um, headline, after his sister lost his ticket, 56-year-old lottery winner drops dead. No? All right. Um, any of you like to sunbathe? You like to do that? Lay out in the sun? Do you use a sunscreen? If you don't, you will now. I read this in this issue of the paper. Sun man burns to death on beach. Only a pile of ashes remain. I also read in this issue Headline Mother goes into shock after <laughs> Mother goes into shock after delivering baby chimpanzee. I read it here. You won't read that in the daily news. I also read about a medical breakthrough 24-year-old man conceives a child. Doctor's not puzzled as to how he will deliver. You will not read that anywhere but here. Now, Kimmy, don't tell me you don't believe that. I did read this in the daily news and this one I don't believe. I mean, I believe all these others. This one I don't believe. The Dodgers won yesterday. And the Raiders are 2-0. and hard to believe. The paper also went on to say that during the upcoming strike, their lawyers will be trying to pull off a legal maneuver as they try to sublease a landfill in Lancaster. It's hard to believe, but that is what's happening. I also read this in the Daily News. This was in Friday's edition of the paper. Headline, Woman Shot in Head During Argument. A woman was shot in the head during an argument with another woman over a mutual boyfriend, police said Saturday. The victim was in the intensive care section at Holy Cross Hospital in Mission Hills where the bullet lodged in her brain. Police were withholding the victim's name because they said her relatives had not been notified of the shooting. Paula Allen, age 23, of Pacoima, so overcome with jealousy, was arrested following the shooting late Friday night. She was booked into the Los Angeles Police Department's Foothill Division on suspicion of attempted murder, police said. That one I do believe. We don't laugh at that one. Jealousy is a very powerful emotion Can even motivate a person to attempt murder The word jealousy is a very potent word. It is a characteristically a human weakness None of us would stand up and brag about a feeling of jealousy toward another individual Jealousy is seen as a flaw It is a human defect jealousy will provoke individuals to do what they normally would not do it is intoxicating jealousy i have a hard time understanding that when i read this see if you can explain it to me exodus chapter twenty verse five you shall not worship them or serve them god said This is the chapter on the Ten Commandments, as you well know. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So jealous that I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on those who hate me, to the third and fourth generations. How do you explain that? A human flaw, a defect, a weakness that would motivate a woman to kill another, at least attempt murder over jealousy because of a boyfriend. And yet God proclaims to the world that he himself is characterized by that very flaw. Can it be true? How do you explain this? Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34 verse 14 verse 13 to set it in context says this but rather you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their asherim. that's a false god for you shall not worship any other gods for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God his name is jealous you can call him that I used to have in my office a poster of all of God's names maybe you've seen those The name Jealous was not listed among those names, but that is his name. That is not unique to the Old Testament. I read this troublesome little verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And this is the verse upon which we will focus this morning as we continue in our study on the attributes of God. Those characteristics that describe our God, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 22, Or, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Penetrating question. Incredible to realize that you and I are capable of provoking our God to jealousy. Mark it well in a discussion of the attributes of God. Yes, he is holy. He is loving. He is gracious. He is forgiving. He is faithful. But he is also jealous. Our God is a jealous God. I have read many books on the attributes of God. I have heard many messages and heard many series on the topic of the attributes of God. Never once have I ever heard a message on the jealousy of God. So, I decided to prepare one Jealousy, how can it be? Let me define our terms What is jealousy? A potent word, a painful emotion If you look it up in a dictionary, this is what you find Jealousy, quote To be intolerant of a rivalry or unfaithfulness To be intolerant of a rivalry or unfaithfulness what is jealousy? Jealousy is to be apprehensive of the loss of another's exclusive devotion. To be apprehensive of the loss of another's exclusive devotion. What is jealousy? Jealousy is to be vigilant in guarding a rightful possession. To be vigilant in guarding a rightful possession now in and of themselves those definitions are not inherently evil there is nothing inherently evil there is no flaw or defect detected within those definitions there is nothing wrong with being intolerant of a rivalry or someone's unfaithfulness to you if that faithfulness is deserved there is nothing wrong with being apprehensive over the loss of another's exclusive devotion if you deserve that exclusive devotion There is nothing wrong with being vigilant in guarding a rightful possession if that possession indeed is rightfully yours. I think it will be obvious to you as you define the term that there is a valid and an invalid jealousy. There is a rightful jealousy and an unrighteous one. There is a jealousy that is both legitimate and yet a jealousy that is illegitimate. Let me illustrate it this way. A girl who has a boyfriend And discovers that she is entangled in a triangle of affection A lover's triangle And motivated by her own jealousy, fearful of losing her boyfriend She rises up against her rival and attempts to kill her Is that illegitimate or legitimate? Is that righteous or unrighteous? Is it proper or improper? Well the answer is obvious to strike out against a rival over a boyfriend would be be illegitimate that boyfriend is not rightfully hers that boy is free to be attracted to whomever he pleases she has no say so over his life in terms of control he is not her rightful possession To be motivated by jealousy in a love triangle over a boyfriend is illegitimate jealousy. And most of the time when we hear jealousy, it is in that illegitimate context. Let me alter the story a bit. If that girl was married to the man... There had come into their lives a day where before God and His angels and His people, they had faced one another, clasped hands, and pledged their lives to one another. For as long as they both shall live, until death us do part. A sacred, solemn vow, a committing of their lives to one another. A vow made to God first and then to their marriage partner second if a rival should enter into that relationship would she be right in feeling jealous absolutely that is not to condone her murder within that but a feeling of jealousy certainly would be expected in fact for someone to be involved in a married relationship and a rival come on the scene For that person to not feel any twinge of jealousy at all, for the person to simply yawn in the face of that, an attitude, well, okay, sara, sara, what will be will be, and if he's attracted to her over me, that's fine, I let him go. We would look upon that, that's not noble. Something has violated that sacred relationship, and it should be met with an attitude of jealousy. Supply that to God. Is it right for God to be a jealous God? Is it right for God to tolerate no rivals in your life and mine? Is it right for God to be intolerant of any unfaithfulness on your part or mine? Absolutely Is it a proper response for God to be apprehensive over losing your exclusive devotion to him? Certainly Is it legitimate for God to be vigilant in guarding a rightful possession namely you and me? Absolutely God has every right to be a jealous God, and He has every right to be a jealous God for four reasons. He has a right to be a jealous God, number one, because He alone is Creator. He is the Creator, we are His creation. And as Creator, He has in our lives an exclusive and a unique relationship. By the very right of His creative act, we are to be devoted singly to Him. Nothing is to rival that. Second, he is right and just in being a jealous God because he alone is Lord. He alone is Lord. He rules the universe. He is the absolute sovereign who calls the shots. And that position will never be endangered. There is no rival to his position as Lord. And as Lord over our lives, he has every right to expect and demand of us exclusive devotion. He has every right to be a jealous God. Thirdly, because we are His purchased possession. He bought us. We are His property. And He paid a rather significant price for you and me. It cost Him the blood of His own Son. The article in yesterday's LA Times, notwithstanding, calling our president a heretic, having said that he denies the blood of Christ. That is absolutely not true. John MacArthur, as well as everyone here, understands that the blood of Jesus Christ was the price paid to purchase us. And fourthly, he has every right to be a jealous God because he alone is worthy of the highest place in my life. He alone is worthy. We sung it earlier and it is absolutely true. He is worthy of the highest place in my own heart. And has every right to demand that there are no rivals. Let me put it to you in a very simple statement. To crown him as number one in my life in terms of my devotion, affection and loyalty is my greatest privilege. But it is also my most awesome duty. To crown him as number one in my life in terms of my devotion and my affection and my loyalty is my greatest privilege, but it is also my most awesome duty. To allow anyone or anything to rival his rightful place of priority in my life is to provoke God to jealousy. It is nothing less than the sin of idolatry the problem is you are listening this morning to and looking at an idolater to the core I don't know why after his having created me and having established his lordship over me and having incredibly blessed my life And having saved me and having purchased me and having delivered me out of the kingdom of darkness and translating me into the kingdom of his dear son, I don't know why it is, even after having walked with him now for 19 years, why it is that my heart is so prone to wander away, but it is. And I don't understand it. I find myself so many times becoming attached to someone or something else that rivals his position. And there are so many times when I have to take evaluation of my own life and call myself into account and deal with it It's like the hymn writer said prone to wander Lord. I feel it prone to leave the God I love I become so easily attached to other things and other people and other plans and other programs and I don't understand why But depravity surges through my veins And I long for that day when I'll be given a new body and no longer have that decadence within my own heart. It was a very appropriate question for Paul to ask. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Do I? Do you? Let's find out. Let me explain it to you. An explanation. Of what the jealousy of God is all about In light of my own tendency toward idolatry An explanation If you have your Bible turn to Revelation chapter 2 Revelation chapter 2 There was a congregation of people The Bible refers to them as the church in Ephesus Which allowed the cancer of idolatry to begin to creep into their congregation The problem is we don't just simply wake up and realize that a traumatic event has happened in our lives. We have suddenly been derailed and crowned another king in our hearts. It is something that happens gradually and many times it is almost imperceptible. And I believe with the church in Ephesus that's what happened there. It was a great church, great leadership. Christ was priority in their congregation, but then over a period of time, their commitment to Him began to become mechanical. And their commitment to Him began to slide. And there came a point in the life of that church where Christ was no longer crowned as number one. And they began to provoke the Lord to jealousy. As I describe it to you, it's a great church. Revelation 2 verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. The word angel could be interpreted in two ways. It could be a literal angel, angelos, or the word also means a messenger. Some people believe that it was a letter addressed to the pastor or the God-ordained messenger to that church. Christ called the church into account, and this is what Jesus said. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. And as I describe it, it will sound like a tremendous church if you were looking for one. This is no doubt the kind of church you would want to align yourself with. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. They were a busy church. They were laboring and they persevered. Didn't give up. I know that you cannot endure evil men. They were intolerant of false teachers. You put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. They were spiritually sensitive. They understood biblical truth. A well taught church. And you have perseverance, and you have endured for my name's sake. They had a track record. And you have not grown weary. They were still going strong. But Christ turned on His X-ray vision and He looked beneath the surface. His zoomer lens zeroed in on their hearts, and He found that a cancer had begun to surge through their veins, almost imperceptible. It's kind of frightening, isn't it, to go to the doctor, thinking that all you have is a simple little discomfort of some kind, and find out your body is racked with cancer. That was this church. Verse 4, I have this against you. You've heard it many times. I have this against you. You have left your first love. First love. That is not chronological. That does not mean first in time. Obviously, those people had loved other things and people. It's not talking about first in time. It wasn't the first time those people had ever fallen in love, and it happened to be with Jesus Christ. It is first in priority. Your first love, your priority love. I no longer am loved as supreme in your life. Something is displacing me, Jesus was saying. I have a rival and as a jealous God, I cannot tolerate it. As a jealous God, I must, I must be vigilant in guarding my rightful possession, and that is you. And so Jesus said, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the deeds that you did at the first. Remember, remember what it was like when you first came to know me. Remember what it was like, what it was like when you first Invited me into your life and experienced the dramatic change that I brought in your life remember it remember what it was like to walk in intimacy with me remember that Remember and then repent Go back to where you were That happened to me As a student here Some of you have heard this story before I'm not proud of it I came to Christ a week before my 17th birthday and my life did a radical 180. Everything changed. My parents couldn't believe it. They thought it was another fad. When he was in junior high school, he was into the Beatles. Now he's into Jesus. It'll pass. But it didn't pass. The night Christ came into my life after watching Billy Graham on a telecast in my bedroom, a flame ignited in my heart that became a burning inferno. I was a man on fire I became a student here And when I was a student here It was my greatest joy and privilege to serve Him I knew nothing of the words that can't be done I could dream whatever dream I wanted to dream And visualize any vision and go for it I can remember our church had a bus sitting in the parking lot And I asked the deacons if I could take the bus and use it as a tool of ministry and we would find high concentrations of children in our neighborhoods and on Saturday nights we would drive the bus into the neighborhood and we'd hang a screen on the side of the bus plug in a projector pass out flyers for a quarter-mile radius and we had crowds of 200 young people come to watch free movies and I would preach to them after the movie was over that's how I began street preaching down in Burbank on the corner in front of 200 children and those were glorious days within two weeks we had 60 kids riding the bus to Sunday school Every week They allowed me to teach in children's church And we had on the average Three to five young people Coming to Christ every week And those were great days You couldn't slow me down You couldn't stop me In my sophomore year here I became attracted to a very Fine, a very beautiful young lady And there's nothing wrong with that I like girls I married one nothing wrong with girls but there was something radically wrong with our relationship because i didn't know it i didn't realize it but as my love for her grew she wasn't my first love my first love was my fourth grade teacher miss Adams. i was 10 and she was 28 what's 18 years i thought that's a good arrangement that was my first love she was my second You know how the talk goes around a college campus. Everybody knew we were going to get married. It was a given. Every summer I'd fly back to her home to spend a week with her and her parents. Parents loved me. I loved them. Everything was great. But the fire began to die. Everything I was doing, I continued to do. I had to show up every Sunday morning and teach my little class, but it became very mechanical. The kids that I was uh, ministering to, they became they became, how how do I put it, they were a barrier to my relationship with her. They were a distraction. Maybe that's the best word to use. I wanted to be with her. I didn't want to sit on that bus anymore. I wanted to sit with her in church. I didn't want to have to preach to these little snotty kids. And I found the fire began to die and the flame began to flicker. Stopped reading my Bible. It became a textbook. I only read it when a test was... Coming up I used to yawn through my Bible classes Because I wanted to sit on the wall And talk to her My heart became attached to another She was from a small town in Idaho We had long talks about my future career She knew where I was headed And what I wanted to do And she told me very honestly I don't know if I can fit in with that I said, well, if you could marry anybody and he could do anything, what would you want him to do? And she said, well, you know, really, my dad is a sugar beet farmer, and I'd like to marry a sugar beet farmer. And I evaluated my own life, and that didn't flow with my agenda. Overalls and a tractor just didn't seem too appealing. It all came to a head. By that time, I had become a high school pastor in my church down in Burbank, and I had a youth group of about 30 high school students. 30 high school students. And her mom called me one day. Long distance. Said, you know, my daughter doesn't adapt very well to crowds. She likes it here on the farm where it's quiet and peaceful. She can't relate to your youth group. And she said, "Um, you're going to have to make a choice. You're going to have to choose between your youth group or my daughter. That was the moment of truth. I love this girl. I cannot explain to you the emotion of that moment. You'd have to live it and be there, and many of you have. You'd have to be there to understand it. This girl had become everything to me, and added to that, I had a very poor self-image when I was growing up. I had known nothing but rejection in my life, and this was the first person to really come along and give me overwhelming acceptance. And I didn't know if I sacrificed this relationship, if there'd ever even be another one. I'm risking everything. You have to understand that. She had become my God. And to have to make a choice between her and what I knew God had called me to do, that was agonizing. I don't want to for one second begin to minimize before you the traumatic emotion of that moment as I went silent on the other end of that phone. And after having wrestled for several days, Friday night rolled around and I took her out. And I remember we went down here. This was a great high-budget date. We went down here to Thrifty's parking lot and I parked the car and we talked. And as we talked, I relayed to her the phone call that I had received about a week earlier. And I said to her, I'm sorry, but it's over. It's over. And I couldn't even believe I was saying those words. Saying goodbye to the one relationship in my life that was giving me a sense of satisfaction And I remember driving her back up to the dorm I was a student my first year at Talbot Seminary commuting up from La Mirada each weekend to spend the weekend with her And I drove her up So I had dated her for two and a half years We almost had the wedding date set But I drove her up to Hotchkiss Lounge and we walked through the lounge and you know the double doors that go into the girls Dorm and I said goodbye to her there turned around walked away and never saw her again And it was only after that moment that the flickering flame was fanned into an inferno once again I'll tell you something God brought a woman into my life My love for her eclipses the love I ever had for this other a hundred times over. A girl who, when she was in high school, used to pray that God would allow her to marry a camp speaker. Because she saw the value of camping ministry and had a heart for teenagers. A girl who's been at my side now for 11 years and her commitment to me is you can go wherever you want to go, you can do whatever you want to do and I'm with you. And I wouldn't trade what God has given me for anything in the world A six-year-old son, if you asked him, what do you want to be when you grow up? He'd give you a big smile, look you right in the eye and say, I want to be just like my daddy And a little bouncing baby boy or girl on the way who will arrive sometime around December And I would have missed all of that If at that crossroads moment in my life, I made the wrong choice I'd be uh, harvesting sugar beets right now. (laughs) Spending half my life spreading manure around a field. An explanation. What does it mean to provoke God to jealousy? Imperceptible. You barely know what's happening. You allow someone or something to begin to capture your heart and find that your heart is slowly moving away. Don't think that's the only time I've ever faced the battle, friends. It goes on and it will be a lifetime battle. Because as 1 Timothy 4, 1 says, Satan in disseminating his sadistic doctrine is very seductive. Very seductive. That's an explanation. Has it happened to you? Let's find out. Let's move into an evaluation of your life. An evaluation. An evaluation. How do you know? I don't know what woke me up to the moment, I guess it was the shock of that phone call. I don't want you to have to go through that, so I've come up with a kind of a questionnaire. I'm going to make a series of statements before you, and I want you to evaluate your own life. And to the degree that these statements are true of you, to that degree your heart has begun to move away. An evaluation. If the statements that I'm about to make describe the normal pattern of your life, the more of these that apply to you, the more your heart has begun to become derailed. Let's deal with it. Let's find out. Simple statements. We're going to move fast. Don't try to write them down. If you want to get a record of them, just pick up the tape. But we have to move fast. Time is always... That fleeting element. So we'll move quickly. Here they are. I don't want you to be bogged down in writing down every single little dangling participle. I want you to feel free to sit back and evaluate your life as I make the statements. So here they are. Number one, when I begin to delight in someone else more than I delight in Jesus Christ. When I delight in someone else more than I delight in Jesus Christ, I find myself wanting to spend time with someone else more than Him. When my when my attention is drawn to someone else more than Him, when I become occupied with someone else more than Him, then at that point I have left my first love and begun to provoke Him to jealousy. That's Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Mark chapter 12, verse 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, the Bible says. All your heart. Secondly, when in the depths of my own soul, I do not long for times of rich fellowship, one-on-one with God. When in the depths of my own soul, I do not long for times of rich fellowship, one-on-one with God. You know what I'm saying? you got time for everything and everyone else but Him. Then at that point, I've begun to leave my first love and provoke him to jealousy. Mark chapter 12, verse 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your soul. Third, when my thoughts during leisure moments do not reflect upon Christ or his word. My thoughts during leisure moments do not reflect upon Christ or his word. I've left my first love. Mark twelve thirty Again, you shall love the Lord your God with all your what? Mind. Fourth, when I easily give in to those things that I know are offensive to Jesus Christ. I easily give in to those things that I know are offensive to Jesus Christ. The key word is the word easily. I easily give in to those things. Then at that point I've begun to provoke his jealousy. Mark 12:30. again, you shall love the Lord your God with all your strength. Fifth, when I become indifferent to the needs of the people around me. Focused upon my own needs. Introspective rather than looking outward. When I become indifferent to the needs of people around me, I've begun to provoke his jealousy. 1 John 3, 17. But whoever has this world's goods and behold his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? At that point, I've begun to leave my first love. Number six. When I do not respond to those around me in a Christ-like manner. When I do not respond to those around me in a Christ-like manner, I've begun to leave my first love and provoke His jealousy. John 13:34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. How? Define it. Well, this is how. As I loved you, you love one another. When I don't respond to those around me the way Christ responded to those around Him. Seven. This one is key. When I view the commands of Christ as restrictions to my happiness rather than expressions of God's love toward me. When I view the commands of Christ as restrictions to my happiness rather than expressions of God's love toward me. Then I've begun to leave my first love. Jesus said in John fourteen fifteen. if you love me, you will keep my commandments you want to please me. Number eight, when I inwardly seek people's recognition or secretly strive to make a name for myself, And I've begun to leave my first love first John two fifteen. do not love the world or the things in the world If anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him Well, you've heard that this present world system, right? But Christ defines it in verse 16. What is the world? Well, Jesus defined it The boastful pride of life The boastful pride of life when I inwardly strive for recognition of people or to make a name for myself number nine when I fail to make Christ or His words known because I fear rejection. I fail to make Christ or His words known because I fear rejection. John twenty-one fifteen. Peter, who three times denied Him. Three times Jesus asked him, Peter, do you love me? Number 10. When I refuse to give up an activity which I know is offensive to someone else. When I refuse to give up an activity which I know is offensive to someone else. Asserting my own rights to do whatever I want to do. Romans 14:15. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Two more. When I become complacent to the sinful conditions around me. I tolerate sin, I begin to laugh at it. The very things that nailed Him to the cross. Matthew twenty four twelve. And because lawlessness has increased, Jesus said, Most people's love will grow cold. When I become complacent or accepting of the sinful conditions around me, then at that point I have left my first love and provoked Him to jealousy. And then finally, number 12, When I refuse to forgive someone else, who has deeply hurt or offended me. When I refuse to forgive another for hurting or offending me. And maintain the right of revenge. Then at that point I've left my first love. First John 4 verse 20. If someone says I love God and hates his brother. He is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen. Cannot love God whom he has not seen. How'd you do? move into a closing exhortation what do you do about it now if this has begun to happen to you how do you address it, how do you face it let me end with this story the most vivid example I can think of is Genesis chapter 22 Abraham and Isaac you're familiar with it so I can go through it quickly we don't need to take a lot of time Isaac was the miracle baby everything was wrapped up in Isaac Abraham wanted a boy throughout his life and he was the miracle baby coming to Abraham and his dear wife when they were in their nineties God's promise was bound up in that boy the future Messiah was bound up in that boy and something subtle began to happen in the heart of Abraham Rather than loving the God who provided the child he began to love the child more than the God who created him That boy became an idol. I can understand that because I love my son. I would die for that kid Anytime place, without question and it would be very easy to allow that boy to displace my commitment to Jesus Christ I can understand it very well When you become a parent and you look into that bundle of joy, you'll understand it too God understands something about us. When our heart becomes attached to something or someone else, we no longer enjoy it. We now become obsessed with it. We lose that flame of passion that burns for God and our lives become empty. And not only that, but we fear that whatever it is we love will be taken away. And so we become obsessed with that thing. And that was happening with Abraham. He could no longer enjoy the child. The child now owned Abraham. You understand? It became the controlling, dominating influence in his life. And God visited Abraham and said, Abraham, this cannot be. And in Genesis chapter 22, God said to him, and well, I could quote it from memory. I've been there so many times. Abraham said, or God said to Abraham, Abraham, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, the one you love and kill him kill him it's over give him back to me and suddenly that tent I'm sure for Abraham became transformed into Thrifty's parking lot what am I going to do he just got the phone call Abraham, it's Isaac or me. It's my daughter or your youth group. And it must have been agonizing. The picture of Christ portrayed in that chapter is incredible, right? And we don't have time to go into all the symbolism. Isaac carrying a wood to erect the altar in a three days journey. And it's an incredible picture of the agony of God's own heart in giving up his son for you and me. You see, God is not asking us to do what He Himself was unwilling to do. And after three days' journey and the altar was erected and the boy, in obedience, submission to his father, laid himself upon that altar, it must have been the most agonizing night in the life of Abraham. We can't even begin to relate to it, can we? As he understood that when the first rays of the sun pierced the midnight sky, I must walk over to that altar, lift the knife, and... Plunge it into the heart of that which I cherish the most And that was the moment of truth And the sun came up in the morning The altar was erected Isaac was laid upon it And Abraham took that knife Lifted it But then the moment of truth It's one thing to lift a knife It's another to plunge it in And the moment of truth came When Abraham's hand began to descend And at that point God stopped his hand And God said, Abraham, it is enough, the battle is over, and you have won it, Abraham. The very willingness of plunging the knife in has caused me to be crowned as number one in your life again. And in that instance, God chose to give Isaac back to him. But it was a different relationship. Abraham didn't love Isaac less, I'm convinced of that. Instead, Abraham loved God more. And when his hand began to descend, he was taking Isaac off the throne and putting God back on it. And in that instance, God gave Isaac back. In my instance, God didn't. In my instance, the knife went all the way in. Here's the problem. When you reach that crisis point in your life where you realize that you have enshrined an idol and you must deal with it with radical surgery. As you begin to lower the knife, you never know if God's going to stop your hand or not. That's the risk. What does lowering the knife mean? That's not literal. It's symbolic for us. To lower that knife means that whatever it is in your life or mine that has taken God's rightful place and become a rival, we lay it on an altar and in our mind's eye we begin to plunge a knife into it. What does that mean? It means this. It means that I, listen carefully, that I give God the right to remove it if he wants. He can take it away from me if He wants. If He chooses to give it back, fine. But God is number one. It will be number two. My time is gone. My exhortation and challenge to you. That you will purpose in your heart today. To get alone with God someplace, sometime. if indeed there is an idol in your life and do what I did in Drifty's parking lot erect an altar, put it on lower that knife God, I give you the right to remove it if you want or the right to give it back if you want if you remove it, I'll praise you if you give it back, it will be number two you will be number one to help you prepare for that moment today, and you make the appointment where you can get alone with God somewhere privately. To help you prepare for that, I'm going to pray. And after I pray, on the screen behind me, a series of several questions will come up, one at a time. As they come up, I want you and your mind to kind of isolate yourself from everybody else in this chapel. Interact with the questions. Answer them honestly. Answer them honestly. And as you honestly encounter each question, maybe perhaps making a notation or two to remind you of this moment, then later on today, when you get alone with God, one-on-one, plunge the knife in. It'll be the most agonizing thing you've ever done in your life. And those of you who have ever done it know exactly what I mean. But the rewards are incomprehensible. Let's pray together.